welcome to the podcast. I'm Vanessa Carlisle. I am Lauren Kylie, and you are listening to On the Dresser, your bi-weekly dose of sex, gender, culture, and politics. And all of our discussions come from the perspectives of queer sex workers and sex educators. We call our special brand of knowledge Edutilation. What are we going to be talking about tonight, Vanessa? Um, Today we're going to be talking about sex work regulation. Uh, This is a response to a listener request. We had a listener ask, how does sex work get regulated in other places? What are the different ways that countries deal with prostitution and sex work? And um, so we're going to be addressing that question tonight. So I do have this hilarious distinction of having a PhD, which is in part gender studies, and uh, the study of sex work is one of the things that I do. So I'm going to be talking about different ways that sex gets regulated, sex work gets regulated. But we also have Corey Cordero here with us tonight. Corey is an attorney at the Tribal Law and Policy Institute. They work on criminal justice issues and tribal court development which is recently focusing on trafficking issues. So we're going to be talking about the regulation of the sex industry via human trafficking laws here in the U.S. at a later point in our conversation. Thanks for being with us, Corey. Thanks for having me. (laughs) So let's start with this big question of what are the different models for regulating sex work? For people in the United States, this is actually a really rare question to ask because for the most part, we live under a, what's known as a criminalized regime, which means most sex work is falling somewhere under criminal law. And for those people who do legal forms of sex work, they're constantly looking over their shoulder to try to make sure that they're not doing anything illegal because the trade of sexual service for money is illegal in this country. So. That's something that's really normal for people is to think of prostitution as illegal and to think of it as a crime. But that's not the case everywhere. And even in legalized sex work industries, even in porn and strip clubs, in the quasi-legal world of kink professionals, they are also legalized differently. They are regulated differently than any other comparable industry produces or does similar work. Yeah. So one thing to remember as we talk about this is that it is very complicated. It's Mm -hmm. an extremely complicated landscape of regulation and consequences. I'm I'm relying a lot tonight on Chi Mbako's work, specifically the book To Live Freely in This World, Sex Worker Activism in Africa. I also relied on Alison Bass's work, Sex Workers and the Law, There's some other really wonderful researchers whose work I've used for this podcast. (laughs) Kamala Kempadu and Joe Doizema, Melinda Shadover. There's also a book called Whores and Other Feminists uh, by by Jill Nagel. That's really, really helpful for these questions. Um, So I just want to make sure that I shout out to the people who have done a lot of the background work that helps me bring you this summary that I'm going to bring you tonight. Okay, so there are a number of different ways that nations regulate their uh, sexual economies. The first one that we're going to talk about is what's known as partial criminalization, or the Nordic model. 
So those of you who have heard of the Nordic model, maybe you've read an article online. For the most part, what, what people in the U.S. get to see about the Nordic model is Sweden's very excited claims about how they have decreased the number of prostitutes in their country and started to eradicate the sex industry. So let's just, let's just start at the beginning. In 1999, Sweden was the first country to introduce the legal system of partial criminalization, where the purchasing but not the provision of sexual service is illegal. In other words, you are the criminal if you're the buyer, if you're the client, if you're the John. Other places we call this John shaming or John criminalization. End demand. End demand model. The Nordic model, the end demand model, and partial criminalization all mean the same thing. Okay, and the idea is that the person who's buying the sex is the is the criminal. The sex worker is not the criminal. The sex worker is decriminalized, so the sex worker is not going to get arrested if the police show up at a transaction. One of the reasons why this model goes into effect is because of the belief that all sex workers are victims of of a patriarchal system. It's very much about trying to protect women from violence. That's that's the idea around partial criminalization. The effects of the model are not are not as clearly celebratory as they might sound. So official reports coming from the Swedish government have made claims like we've decreased the prostitution on our streets by half and all all of these kinds of claims are coming out of the of the Nordic model. But when researchers go in to actually talk to sex workers there about what's happening, they're finding a very different reality. What they tend to find is that the workers themselves are expected to pay income tax on their earnings, but they have no access to protective labor or employment laws. What they find is that the workers are still working, but they're having a harder time getting their clients in the places where they used to get them because the clients are afraid, because the clients are now criminalized. And so workers are having to meet their clients in other places, and they're often finding themselves in more danger because they have to meet away from the more public spaces or they have to find new places to meet their clients. So we also have an issue in the Nordic model, which is the immigrant labor is still criminalized. So you cannot come from a foreign country and work as a sex worker in Sweden. So that means that there's a large population of sex workers who are still being criminalized under the Nordic model. And those people are definitely not getting asked if the Nordic model is working for them because it clearly isn't. They're getting deported. They're getting incarcerated. So partial criminalization tends to serve the needs of a legislature that wants to show that it's trying to protect women, but it doesn't actually respond to the needs of sex workers on the ground for the most part. And I think that that's, you know, I'm saying that in, in a very general way, but it's, it's what I'm reading from people who are doing research with sex workers. And when you get sex worker voices in the conversation, they're not happy about the Nordic model. Well, from my understanding, it's not even really stopping the arrest. They're just getting arrested on different charges. So it's just criminalization under different words mm -hmm. because there is still the threat of arrest. Most importantly, there is still the power dynamic between the police with the threat of arrest and the sex worker, which still leads to incredible rates of abuse. Mm -hmm. That's true. So it's not even doing the very thing it claims to be doing, which is at all decriminalizing decriminalizing. Are there any other charges that folks can be prosecuted for besides prostitution or solicitation? It's usually connected to drugs, immigration, business in the wrong area. 
lewd acts. There, I'm not. I'm also not an expert on Swedish law, so okay. this is. But there's still other people. other charges that right. end up getting brought anyway. And it's important to know that at no time in the drafting or the passage or the review of the Swedish law did the government actually ask sex workers what they wanted. They mm-hmm. were not part of the drafting of this law, and they have not been part of its review process either. Um, and that's a real red flag to me. Anytime I read that there's been you know, policy that's been enacted about sex work that has not involved sex workers, you can kind of bet that there's something protectionist or paternal or patriarchal going on there. And, and it comes from this part of the stigma, which is the belief that sex workers don't know what's good for them. Um, so they weren't part of it. They, they have to do, I think, a lot of work still to get sex worker voices at the table. Um, and that's just not something that people are, are thinking about. They're not necessarily thinking about how do we get the sex workers to be part of this conversation um, mm-hmm. when they're making laws about our bodies. Okay, so that's briefly, that, that, was, par- that was partial criminalization, <laughs> otherwise known as the Swedish or Nordic model, otherwise known as end-demand policies. Again, you're going to hear really positive things about end-demand. Governments like to talk about end-demand as a solution. Feminists love to talk about end-demand Anti-traffickers love to talk about end-demand. But the other basic logical problem with that is when in the hell has buying, making the purchase of anything illegal actually ended the demand? It hasn't worked on drugs. It hasn't worked on sex toys. It hasn't worked. It did not work on alcohol. Prohibition under criminalization just is not effective. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that it also assumes is that it is possible to eradicate prostitution per se. Like, just Mm -hmm. prostitution, the trade of sexual service for money, and demand laws are are part of this. It it is a belief system. It's a a political, philosophical positioning that says it is possible and we should have the goal of ending prostitution across the board. And, you know, not only do I disagree with that as a goal, but I also just think it's like a, a wildly delusional way to proceed as a lawmaker. Delusions of grandeur. <laughs> well, as someone who was in law school for a while, I think it's really interesting because people talk about why criminal laws are enacted and there's deterrence, there's punishment, but there isn't any other law that I can think of in the criminal law where the argument for having the law is eradication. No one's like, end murder, create murder laws. <laughs> right. Which, I don't know, it's kind of interesting. Just something but we that should I'm thinking about while listening. We, we are on the dressers firmly anti-murder. <laughs> just, I, I have to clarify these, we have to clarify these things as sex workers sometimes. Just, we are anti-trafficking, we are anti-murder. Well, just in terms uh, of... Yeah. And, and, I mean, even folks that, like, you know, if you have a death penalty law and murder laws, like, those two things... Mm-hmm. are at cross purposes but right so you have an idea with even a death penalty law that you're trying to curtail or minimize right as opposed to, no one's going to claim like end people killing murder is the solution to murder right yeah murder laws and a way to end murder mhm it's a way to punish that's my kind of i guess my point like regardless of what people say about um the nordic model or criminalizing the buyer it doesn't really work to end it it can only really work to punish right yeah thank you great point okay on to the next yes. sorry i'm gonna keep interrupting now no, please we, we we love a legal perspective we love because... a voice of reason <laughs> she's saying we're unreasonable i'm saying we're so reasonable that we love other voices of reason i like it <laughs> 
Okay, so that's partial criminalization. The next model we're going to look at is legalization. Places where you find legalization. The Netherlands, so the classic, I'm going to go to Amsterdam and walk along the red light district and buy some time with a lady. When people think about the, the freedom to do that, they're thinking about the legalized regime in the Netherlands. And also Senegal is a place where prostitution has been legalized. Again, these forms of policy are not driven by uh, sex worker rights. They're not driven by sex workers themselves. Sex workers t do not tend to advocate for legalization. Why not? Well, the main reason why not is that legalization tends to come with what Chimbaco calls hyper-regulation, mm. which means that if you have sex work is legal, then it's regulated too. You have health checks. You have occupational health and safety people coming to your brothel to make sure that you have enough fire escapes. You have, you know, you have all kinds of extra regulations, sometimes more regulations on sex work than you have for other forms of labor, which puts an extra burden on sex workers. So hyper-regulation is also a way to deter a lot of people from the industry because, or deter a lot of people from being recognized as legal actors in the industry because you have to have all your papers in order. And that's hard. <laughs> it also creates a hyper-regulation in a way that only, and occasionally, usually, only a very specific, usually brothel-based model is legal, which is also a problem because the regulations on how brothels are kept are both hyper-enforced and not designed with sex worker health and safety. Right. So legalization, while it sounds like it would be really good for sex workers because it would sort of bring them into the light, right? It would make, it would make them subject to the same regulation as any other workplace. When you don't address stigma and when you don't address the fact that most people come into the sex industry for financial uh, reasons because they're, they're living under um, economic oppressed conditions, you don't acknowledge that making people go through a whole new set of administrative procedures actually puts an extra burden on them. Mm -hmm. And it gives license to law enforcement to continue to kind of, you know, put, a, put an eagle eye on, on the sex industry. Mbako writes that legalization has often resulted in stringent regulation of the sex industry that creates a large underground class of sex workers who don't abide by these stigmatizing hyper-regulations, such as mandatory health checks, and therefore effectively remain criminalized. So when you have legalization, you actually create more criminalized sex workers. You can see a lot of this in the legal areas of sex work in the States, too, as we were talking about. Right, like we have legal porn sets, and then we have all of this kind of like outside the regular... Which then legal. creates unsafe porn sets that have no oversight, let alone the accountability. Mm -hmm. and and hey, then you have both criminalized and unsafe sex sex working conditions. Is it true that there's more legalized forms of sex work in Nevada than other states? Like, how does that work? Yeah, that is true. So there's forms of sex work in the brothel system that uh, that are legal in but, Nevada that are not legal in other parts of the states. But only in the brothel system, only in approved brothels, which is so problematic in terms of who gets approved and how and why. And then there's the fun thing where if you're going to work in a brothel, you have to live there the entire time you're working there. 
you don't get to go outside and go home and come back. You are on premises, which is not an okay work environment for anybody. I have a lot of feelings. <laughs> I've never actually worked in the brothel system, so I don't want to be the voice of all the problems. Right, but right. those are some major ones. Mm-hmm. Just Okay. Legalization. We do have it. We have it in the Netherlands. We have it in Senegal. We have it... I I don't know if we have it in any other countries, actually, right now, full legalization. We might. And I just just haven't looked at my map recently. We're we're also not international legal scholars. We're not international scholars of law. It's true. It's really true. (laughs) We're we're international (laughs) legal dilettantes. (laughs) But I do want to just say that most of the writing on what legalization looks like and most of the data we have on how it works is coming from the Netherlands and Senegal. That's where we're getting that data from. So it's worth, it's worth mentioning them. Okay. So we've now talked about partial criminalization, otherwise known as end demand or the Nordic model coming from Sweden. We've now talked about legalization uh, which the two countries that are sort of modeling that and giving us data on that are the Netherlands and Senegal. Legalization coming with a lot of extra regulation. And Nevada. What's that? And Nevada. <laughs> and, 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 Nevada. And, and Nevada. Again, so legalization, I, I just, one more point about legalization. Legalization does not come with this assumption that you can eradicate the sex industry or that you can stop, you know, end prostitution That's at all. That's not the goal. That's not the goal of a legalization uh, regime. But the, but, the, but the way that they do it is definitely with this notion of, like, protecting women from violence. But, again, it's very selective, Immigrant women don't tend to be protected, right? Anyone who falls outside of the most acceptable forms of admin, if, they, if, you didn't, if you don't do your admin, you don't get protected, right? We end up having this very large group of criminalized sex workers still, mm-hmm. even when it's legal, because of how difficult it is to remain on the right side of the law. And it sounds like the brothel system, just from the limited reading that I've done, kind of makes it ripe for labor trafficking because now it's it's mm-hmm. sex trafficking isn't isn't the concern but labor trafficking in terms of exploitation of workers there's occasionally mm-hmm. um, laws regulating the brothel system that specifically make it so someone who is not the sex workers has to be the one basically running all the money and mm-hmm. the profit which is the exact opposite of the only brothel I could imagine supporting, basically. Like, you want to know that the brothel is getting run by a sex worker or a former worker. Yeah. I want the people working in the brothels to basically also be the people to get to set the rules of the brothels. Mm-hmm. And well, touch the money. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And in charge of the money. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I think people who run brothels who are not sex workers can be can also be people who do a lot of work and deserve to get paid for that. The house mom is an incredibly respected position, but they're also, also not the ones bringing in the profit most of the time. Okay. <laughs> What's legalization? Uh so, yeah, legalization is crazy. I mean, I just it's it's a really interesting thing because it sounds, I think, to a lot of people, legalization sounds the same as decriminalization. They sound like the same thing, well, but, it also but practically they're really not. It sounds better than criminalization, right? But it but it's not for a lot of people. Okay, so here we go. Decriminalization. What is it? What does it mean? In two thousand three. 
New Zealand was the first country to decriminalize sex work. They did this through the passage of the New Zealand Prostitution Reform Act. And this act was uh, the result of a coalition of sex workers, women's groups, legal and public health advocates, members of parliament. And it clearly states that it safeguards the human rights of sex workers and protects them from exploitation and promotes the welfare and occupational health and safety of sex workers. That's part of the act itself. I read that from Chimbaco's work, To Live Freely in This World. Why do, why do I want to highlight it? Well, it's the only model that actually has sex workers at the table advocating for what works for them. Decriminalization, again, is also going to be very complex. So mm-hmm. it's a complicated process. It's not like you just remove the criminal penalties and then you're done. Boom, everyone's happy and safe. Of course, that, that's, it's never going to work that way. It's a good step, though. However... <laughs> It does seem to be um, the way forward, according to like a global sex workers' rights movement that the U.S. is really struggling to try to catch up with. The U.S. sex workers' rights movement, you know, we're fighting for decriminalization in various ways, but we simply don't have some of the more incredible steps forward that that we're seeing in other places. So. What happened in New Zealand is really interesting. They also still have some problems with the way that they target, deport, and incarcerate immigrant workers. Mm -hmm. But we are seeing stats coming out of there that seem to really support the idea that if you decriminalize, if you get sex, sex workers at the table for decriminalization, and if you involve sex workers at every stage of the process, that the outcomes are better. Less violence, better health outcomes. The other thing that decriminalization does is it allows people a little bit more flexibility to get out of the industry. Mm -hmm. So even under a legal situation, it is hard to get out of the sex work industry because let's say you're always trying to play catch up with your paperwork. You're always trying to make sure that you're, you know, that you're getting your forms in for all this hyper regulation. It's very, very difficult to then put your sights on something else or to, or to try to cultivate another career decriminalization offers people this option, this a little bit more flexibility to set their own terms and to move out of the industry. Decriminalization obviously isn't going to immediately remove the stigma. So you still have to handle the fact that sex workers are getting discriminated against in other jobs, in housing, right? That people still suspect sex workers of being bad parents, all this kind of crap. Um, but decriminalization is a, a very important step towards the reduction of stigma. On that point, does New Zealand have any anti-discrimination laws, or did it adjust anti-discrimination laws to make it illegal to discriminate against folks for prior work? I don't know the answer to that. No, neither. Would you think that would be a good idea? I think that's, I mean, I think anti-discrimination laws, especially if they protect sex workers, is is something that it would just blow my mind if I ever saw them. I just thought, you know. It never even occurred to me. That sounds so lovely. People fear decriminalization because they think that it will increase the number of people in the sex trade. They fear that once it's decriminalized, that there will no longer be a barrier for, like, the good girls who would normally not do it. There's right? also, but there's no there's no evidence to suggest that there's been like some spike in people going into the trade in New Zealand. There's also a serious concern that sex workers won't be punished for being sex workers. I think there's a big movement in South Africa towards decriminalization right now. the The policy advo- advocacy and the work in South Africa is really stunning. It's it's amazing. There's all of these organizations working together. And I also want to point out that decriminalization is the preferred position for a lot of very well-respected human rights groups internationally. So the World Health Organization, Human Rights Watch, Global Commission on HIV and the Law, 
<clears throat> Amnesty International. All of these groups have done extensive, I hate this phrase, but I'm using it, deep dive. Is this an appropriate time to use that phrase? Have done, like, extensive research, like, like on-site interviews, qualitative research, quantitative research. They're all coming back saying decriminalization, the removal of criminal penalties seems to be one of the most important things for the health and safety of sex workers. What happens after you remove the criminal penalties is something that has to be decided in a very localized way. Mm -hmm. Because what happens in any given location is going to be different. The worker experience is going to be different. Just because sex work isn't criminal doesn't mean that you're not going to get still prejudice from the police. It doesn't mean that sex workers are automatically going to start accruing workers' benefits. It doesn't mean that you're going to suddenly be able to have a really open and honest and wonderful conversation with your doctor about what you do, right? These are all parts of, of living under stigma that decriminalization can't quite touch, that you have to have either other policies or just, you know, incredible massive education campaigns and cultural change to start seeing these, these things. So decriminalization is not a final step, but it is, I think, you know, it is, it is probably the most important first step. And it's mm -hmm. something that for American audiences, it just doesn't, it's like, what? Because the prostitution as, like, the prostitute as criminal is such an important archetype it's not, <laughs> for us. It's not seen as an important fight. It's not, it's just so ingrained that it's acceptable and natural that prostitution is illegal. I've had conversations that have basically ended with, well, that's just the way people think, and that's the way it is, so there, that's the law. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels very entrenched here. The stigma feels very entrenched here. It feels very tied to the law, and it also feels like these international movements, you know, there's, there's just so much incredible organizing happening in Brazil, in India, in South Africa, in Canada. There's cool stuff happening in Canada, like cool stuff happening in Mexico. There's just all of these movements occurring that have so much self-respect, that have so much to say about not just sex work itself, but how the way that a nation treats its sex workers reflects how it treats its women. That we have like a, we stopped having a division of good and bad women. That mm -hmm. we would see that the criminalization and the persecution of sex workers is actually tied to the way women outside of the industry, queers outside of the industry, men in and out of the industry are getting treated. Mm. So, Okay, so we've talked about partial criminalization. We've talked about legalization. We've talked about decriminalization. So obviously the last model is criminalization, which is what we live under here. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So what are the consequences of criminalization? Well, criminalization is the direct regulation of the trade of sexual service for money. And some of the consequences of criminalization are incarceration, lack of access to housing, lack of access to other jobs, lack of access to social services that might support a family. Rampant abuse by police. Mm -hmm. And of course, there's there's more. There's social exclusion and isolation. There's, you know, there's there's a myriad of effects that are not as measurable, maybe, because they come in the form of things like trauma and PTSD. And those consequences are felt disproportionately depending on race and class and gender, especially in the United States. Mm-hmm. 
So in the U.S., we also have our anti-trafficking movement, which has been exported globally. I mean, it's it's all over the place now. But we're going to talk about how the regulation of sex work at prostitution is conflated with the regulation or the or the you know movement to end sex trafficking in the U.S. And that's where really I have questions for Corey. <laughs> I feel like we accelerated past criminalization, just kind of a basic definition. Criminalization of sex work, it's all forms of sex work in the United States, with some exceptions in Nevada. Like, what it, does that look like? It's specifically the criminalization of prostitution, but almost every other form of sex work has a relationship to those anti-prostitution laws. So most sex work gets... Most sex work gets, if not legislated within prostitution laws, at least compared to, or at least is in conversation with them. For So for a strip club to exist, they partially need to prove that they're not, that they do not have prostitution going on. For professional kinky people, their jobs only exist as long as they very clearly, explicitly state that it is not prostitution and even then can still be criminalized under prostitution laws. Mm -hmm. So what you get is whole is a whole industry that is that has to that has a legal relationship with prostitution laws, even if it's not prostitution. So when we when we talk about sex work as criminalized in the US, we are including completely legal forms of work. But that still, and we're also including people who are not actually prostitutes who are getting arrested under prostitution laws, particularly trans women of color. Um, We're talking about the use of condoms as evidence of prostitution. It's this whole industry of criminalization that affects sex workers no matter what. Well, yeah, and and it contributes, so criminalization contributes also to what we call the hierarchy, which is Mm -hmm. you get... You know, even I, I remember this so strongly from the strip club, like being in the dressing room and there being girls in there who were seeing their clients outside the club and girls in there who were like really catty and really bitchy to those girls because they considered them lower class because they saw their clients outside the club instead of just saying like, it's just a different gig, right? Yeah. It's just a different gig. I work here. You work out there too. Like, there was no, that that level of mutual respect for there being different ways to do sex work because of criminalization and because of the fact that we can actually associate trading sex for money with a lower class existence in this country, that's part, of, that really contributes to sex workers treating each other poorly because they are afraid, they want to dissociate from people who are trading sex for money. And it means that we get these little enclaves and smaller communities that are extremely self-protective. Escorts only hanging out with other escorts because they're not welcome around strippers or porn stars, right? Mm-hmm. And the porn stars who are also escorts having to be, like, real careful about how who they talk to and how they do that. That's, that's not just social stigma. They may not get hired again. That, can, that will blacklist you for student, certain producers. So criminalization affects... Everybody who does anything erotic for money because mm-hmm. the people who are doing legal work have to be constantly looking over their shoulder and trying to figure out how to prove that they're not doing that bad thing. Well, and it, okay. also, it gives license to barred access from housing. It gives license to barred access from custody. It gives 
all these other forms of discrimination is no because what you're doing is criminal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm thinking I'm thinking also about the way that it just it, it it can sort of sprawl out like the nuisance ordinance that got passed in in Oakland a couple years back where you know there was a big fight about it but the but there was a nuisance ordinance and the and the way that it worked was if you suspected someone in your apartment building of of being a prostitute, you could get them evicted just on the suspicion. They didn't have to, no trial, no, nothing. It was just like, if you think that's what's happening and you report it, that's enough. So again, like that's, that's because it's, that's because it's criminalized. That, I mean, that wouldn't fly if it wasn't, right? It would at least be a hell of a lot harder to implement. Yeah. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask because I think you rushed past that explanation of sure. Thank what, you. what did criminalization look like here. Thank you, yeah. So another thing that makes it really complicated is that we now have anti-trafficking laws, too. Mm-hmm. Right? <laughs> so, and that according to our federal government, there actually is no such thing any as, as a person who is consenting to be in the in the sex trade like that's not that's not a thing Hmm. you are you are like by definition either getting trafficked or trafficking I think is kind of what it comes down to can you traffic yourself in some places right that's still Uh, possible depends on how broad your trafficking law is so I know Alaska is a really good example their first effort at anti-trafficking legislation made it so it was so broad that you could get convicted of trafficking yourself and a couple of folks actually did i think that was like their first convictions was trafficking the first trafficking convictions in alaska were of sex workers that were charged with trafficking themselves from before they just would have been charged with prostitution right so the first thing they did with anti-trafficking laws was put more charges on sex workers in alaska anyway and i think that's kind of the the possibility for other places that have overbroad trafficking legislation and Tara Burns did a bunch of work on that, and I know they, they've gotten some changes to the law since then, and uh, sex workers in Alaska are still pushing for more changes, but that was kind of the first thing they did, and it was heavily borrowing from the Federal Trafficking Victims Protection Act. Um, I have a question, actually, because we've talked a lot about criminalization, specifically in a broad sense, but one thing I actually don't know is what does what do the laws look like on reservations, or what's the relationship between law enforcement and native sex workers specifically, besides just terrible? Well, I guess we should back up. Yes, So maybe to clarify why I think I'm here is I'm an attorney. I've been looking at these issues specifically because trafficking is an issue that tribal communities are identifying. So they want trafficking laws. They want anti-trafficking legislation. They want to address this issue. They want to understand, does this issue even exist in my community? And so that's kind of where tribes are starting from, kind of where states were, I think, a while ago, like maybe a decade ago, before they started creating trafficking legislation for states. It used to just be the federal government had a trafficking law, and that was it. So I'm kind of here to learn more about, you mentioned earlier that you have to have sex workers at the table when you're having conversations about trafficking legislation, or decriminalization and those two things get conflated with each other all the time and prostitution laws inevitably interact with trafficking legislation is my basic understanding. So for me and for my work it's really useful for me to learn what other models exist, what are their flaws, what are the pros, what are the cons, and I want to be in the best position that I can be to 
make recommendations or at least lay out the facts for tribes to choose for themselves what model they want to take because it become it's it seems to me that tribes definitely are under pressure to pick up a model Mm. Um, and some folks are rushing into it and of course the U.S. is the closest model and so a lot of times tribal justice systems mirror what's happening in U.S. state systems. But how is it different? I mean, there's there's obviously, like we were talking about earlier, about what the sort of ir- irrefutable argument that that trafficking of Native women is going to be a completely like different experience than it is in, in the U.S. Well, so we haven't talked about tribal criminal justice systems, I guess, which is the question. So that's kind of like why I'm here is to learn a little bit, ask some questions, and, and see where where we can go kind of from from square one but tribal criminal justice systems are limited in jurisdiction so in terms of criminal jurisdiction most tribes can't prosecute non-indians so if you're a native nation you have your territory you have your members you there are other indians and all those folks can fall under your criminal laws and can be prosecuted be arrested by your tribal police department prosecuted in tribal court etc non-indians for the most part can't be prosecuted criminally. And so tribes are able to look at prostitution laws and anti-trafficking laws that affect Indians only, but non-Indians is is kind of a separate issue. Within that system, non-Indians that commit crimes on reservations are generally prosecuted by the federal system or states, depending on which state you're in and which tribe and which reservation. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of a a very basic background on criminal justice in Indian country, and um, it's really, really complicated, so I'd recommend looking further into it. So from that system, tribes are now looking to create anti-trafficking legislation because they're not satisfied with the response from the state or the response from the federal government. So they're like, you're not, you're not treating this issue seriously, we want to be able to handle it for ourselves, and while tribes can't handle non-Indian perpetrators, they can at least handle members of their tribe and Indians of other, like members of other tribes. So that's kind of where they're starting from. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking about what we are envisioning when we say the word trafficking. So like I, I personally am making a serious distinction between consensual adult sex work and trafficking. And I'm willing to use the word trafficking because it's out there and it's what people are using. The federal definition involves force fraud or coercion or someone who's under the age of 18, right? And that's actually not completely true. And so that's a really big misconception. There, The federal law, I don't have the section in front of me, but there's a federal law that defines what trafficking is. And then there's another law called severe forms of trafficking in persons. And that is the, that includes the language force, fraud, or coercion. And that includes a heightened sentence, stiffer penalties, and under severe forms of trafficking in persons, if you're talking about adults, it's force, fraud, or coercion. And if you're talking about a minor, it's just severe. So you automatically get the the increased penalty. So basically, it's a two-tier system where there's the standard one, which is regular trafficking, and then the severe one, force, fraud, or coercion, or a minor is involved. Okay. So somebody who is, let's say, like, you know, a sex worker who gets who's who has a driver and that driver gets her to her appointments and you know brings her back and maybe makes deposits for her or whatever that person can be prosecuted under trafficking laws now right under federal trafficking laws theoretically yes so this is the interesting thing about 
Indian country. So federal systems don't usually handle prostitution charges and they usually don't handle trafficking cases unless it's like a bigger, like a trafficking ring or there's multiple victims or a gang or organized crime or something like that as part of it. So federal, but the federal trafficking law kind of set the standard for the states to follow. And that's kind of the standard that tribes seem to be looking at because it it exists. And so it seems that everyone's definition of trafficking is tethered to the federal definition, but it doesn't have to be. So Mm -hmm. Alaska created a an even broader definition of trafficking. So if this happens, you're a trafficker or you're a trafficking victim, and the case that you just kind of laid out, transporting someone for purposes of completing a commercial sex act is enough to be charged with a trafficking crime. And so that that would be true across a lot of states. I imagine I haven't looked at all the laws, but most states that are following the federal language, it's it becomes really tricky. Like harboring is, is one of the words used. So if you are a group of workers who are living in the same house, you might get charged with trafficking each other. If you kind of do support or are taking money or letting clients in or whatever. So there's, it's a really, really broad definition. And so states like Alaska had a really broad trafficking law. Sex workers were like, this is, this isn't okay. And there's been some adjustments, but my concern is tribes following that same path. And so my job, I see it as making sure that Native nations know exactly what they're getting into when it comes to creating anti-trafficking legislation. And part of that is making sure that you're addressing the issue. So if you're concerned about trafficking, what does good anti-trafficking legislation look like? And if you're concerned about prostitution in your community, what does your prostitution law look like? And how do those two things relate to each other? Because I think they're um, inextricably intertwined. Mm -hmm. This is great. I just want to be sensitive to... The way that we talk about trafficking being something that ultimately has, um, like how trafficking laws end up hurting victims, right? Like the laws that are set forth to protect victims, how they end up hurting them, what sorts of un- unintended consequences there have been. So you've mentioned that in an overly broad trafficking law, you can end up prosecuting somebody for trafficking themselves, which just, I think I think we can just say, okay, that's not a good thing. And that's something that Native nations aren't interested in doing, which is great. So that's, mm-hmm. I think Native nations and their criminal justice systems are in a really great place to sort of create a new model mm-hmm. for the U.S. because they're smaller systems, they actually care about their citizens and their members and treat them as people and they're not interested in criminalizing folks and they're not interested in limiting their educational opportunities or their job opportunities or all the other sorts of things that I think are embedded in the U.S. criminal justice system. But unfortunately that it a lot of the systems kind of mirror the U.S. system in in style and you know it's an adversarial system and their the laws are similar and the process is similar so it's I think it's it's a good opportunity for tribes to create a different kind of way to address trafficking and a different kind of way to address sex work in their communities, but it is it, it does kind of mirror the U.S. system as a default. And by mirroring the U.S. system, they're also mirroring in some way this the moral panic, right? The question of, like, is human trafficking, and particularly sex trafficking, an epidemic that's, mm-hmm. like, brand new, you know, or that's, like, way worse in the last decade than it ever was before? Yeah, I think that might be part of what is sparking the conversation across different tribal nations. And I think in some communities, it's a bigger problem. There's this oil boom up in North Dakota and South Dakota, I think, the Bakken oil field. And so reservations are out there, and all of a sudden there is this huge influx of male workers who are out there, they're oil workers. 
And now you have this kind of demand for sex work. And so tribal communities are seeing cases of sex trafficking and kind of like what I would identify as sex trafficking and I think what you might identify as sex trafficking, but they're also seeing an increase in prostitution. Mm-hmm. And so they don't, depending on the community, if you see prostitution as a form of exploitation default, like sex worker is a victim by default, is a trafficking victim by default, then what happens is they end up using their anti-trafficking law to combat trafficking and prostitution at the same time. And I think those have to be done separately in order to be effective because what happens is you create, you'll end up creating a trafficking law that's too broad and will actually end up criminalizing sex workers um, and have heightened penalties because usually trafficking laws have heightened penalties and um, not actually provide resources for actual trafficking victims to exit the industry. You, You talked about all these issues of stigma. So if you're a worker, I lost my train of thought. Okay. Um, oh, you made me think of something too. What was it? Uh, oh, heightened penalties. I, I think that's a really important point too. So, like, we talk about the criminalization of prostitution. We should be clear for most people, a prostitution arrest is a misdemeanor. It's mm-hmm. it's not you know like you can also you can always get some sort of felony enhancement, and there's an HIV felony enhancement that we're still trying to deal with. There's all these ways that people want to kick it up. But it is, it, you know, it's a misdemeanor offense in California. So, but trafficking is a felony, right? It's like always a felony. Yeah, so if you're, there are only four nations right now that I know of that have trafficking laws. But if you have a solicitation or prostitution law, it'll probably be like a lower class offense. But the trafficking laws that I've seen enacted are like the highest level. So the, the maximum jail sentence you can give and the maximum fine you can give. So even in places where we have safe harbor laws, in California, we recently passed a safe harbor law for minors who are picked up in prostitution stings and so, so if you're a minor and you're picked up in a prostitution sting and you're suspected of, of prostitution, you automatically go into social services. You do not get incarcerated. Any, well, I mean, we could, you get detained. We could argue about what that means. But you're not going to go, you're not going to get criminally prosecuted for, for prostitution as a minor in California. And there's 35 other states that have these safe harbor laws for minors. When we get to trafficking, we have a whole other series of questions about what happens to you and where you go, and and who's in charge of you, and what kind of detaining is going to happen. And there are industries making a lot of money on that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're an immigrant, and you get swept up in a uh, an anti-trafficking sting or an anti-prostitution sting, um, the likelihood of you being deported is just, like, extremely high. Like, anti-trafficking laws are allowing for a lot more money to flood into law enforcement, over, I think, $64 million or something a few years ago. To, to just money going towards rounding people up, you know, bringing them all into a station, t- deciding who's going to get who's going to get arrested and and who's going to get a citation and then and released. There's just a lot more incentive for law enforcement to bring people in on trafficking. Yeah, and that kind of brings me to to some of the issues that I'm having because. Native nations across the board are starting to become concerned, like tribal advocates specifically are leading the charge on trafficking's an issue. They're using the federal definition, which is, I think, the, the main one that most folks have for like what defines trafficking, and a lot of things fall under that umbrella. 
And so trafficking is an issue, we need to deal with trafficking. Um, but there are limited resources. So tribal justice systems are underfunded. Not a lot of tribes have um, economic development programs that are gonna bring in a lot of money to their court system. And so my challenge is to try to find out, is trafficking actually happening in your community? How, like, as you define it. So how do you define trafficking? Is that happening in your community? If so, okay, let's let's create laws that are going to make it um, safer for victims. It's going to make it easier for, for sex workers to assist in helping identify traffickers because victims aren't always in the place to do that. Maybe they don't want to testify, etc. Like, there are all these challenges with prosecuting that kind of a crime. But if trafficking is not happening in your community and you're just seeing this huge spike in uh, the amount of sex workers, native sex workers from your community that are at risk in the man camps, that are at risk to criminalization, that are limiting their future education and employment opportunities by entering the sex industry and not being able to exit the sex industry. How do you address that? Mm-hmm. Do you want to criminalize that? And my understanding from most tribal advocates is no, they don't want to, they don't want to criticize, uh, they don't want to criminalize native women. Um, of course, they usually talk about it in the lens of native women, but I think that there are more folks than just women that are native sex workers, but it tends to focus on native women. So if you're looking at a rise in prostitution or a rise in sex work in your community, you want to deal with that. Like, how do you most effectively deal with that? And it's not by creating a human trafficking task force. That's a waste of resources. If you have your tribal prosecutor and your tribal judge and your chief of police all spending one day a week trying to tackle this trafficking problem that doesn't exist, it makes it really hard to actually address what it is that you're concerned about. Mm-hmm. And so I think trying to separate out those two things is, is useful. What are some of the barriers to these conversations about, you know, how do you define trafficking or how do you define sex work? Like, what are, what are some of the difficulties there? So for me, there is a difficulty with an older generation of tribal advocates that I think have an older model that they're looking at, have an older version of feminism that they're using as the default, and have the U.S. as an example of what's of, of how to attack the problem. And, of course, there's, like, the National Human Trafficking center and all of these sort of statistics and and everything's trafficking and and I think that creates that creates this narrative of modern day slavery quote unquote and um, victimization that that is that is scary to folks and so they want to address it kind of across the board and they see anyone who is participating in sex industries as a victim and so if they can call you a trafficking victim and, and save you that way they will and so I think that some folks have hold that kind of as a genuine as a genuine belief that sex work in and of itself is exploitation. And I think, you know, there there are things that they can say in support of that. And then there are other folks who are on the fence. Um, and there are other folks who just want to stop trafficking and they think sex work is fine. Mm-hmm. And so trying to work with people who have such a range of beliefs is really difficult. And trying to make sure that the conversation is honest and people are, are calling prostitution, prostitution, and trafficking, trafficking is kind of just where I'm trying to start from. And I think where other folks are trying to start from. But another thing that complicates it is tribal advocates who are kind of leading the anti-trafficking movement across um, Native nations are dealing with folks who don't think it's actually a problem or who people who don't want to talk about trafficking as a problem or people who don't want to talk about sex work as a problem. Mm-hmm. And so that's a- another barrier. And so I think that kind of adds to their banging the drum on trafficking is happening and it's scary and we need to stop it now. Yeah. 
It's so interesting too because of the way that the that Native nations have to work so closely with the Fed, right? And then mm-hmm. there's like we're dealing with state law a lot of the time. We're dealing with you know we're dealing with municipal codes and state laws a lot of the time. And I think that there's a lot of people who don't know that federally there just is no such thing as a sex worker. You're not actually even allowed to use that term according to the department of justice. Like if you look up the style guide for the department of justice, you can find style guide, meaning what words you're allowed, you know, what words you're allowed to use in your writing of policy, the department of justice mandates that you use the term prostituted women. So it's, it's gendered. <laughs> that, was, that, was, that was Lauren. Sorry. Lauren dropping her dropping her rage. <laughs> I have a huge problem with that term and the whole tradition it comes out of. Well, of course, because it's you know it's a passive construction, prostituted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it implies that there's a third party always. Um, it also implies that the only people who are going to be in this position are women, which is, of course, not true. So we have a term that's being mandated by the Department of Justice that is completely inaccurate to describe the population of people that it's supposedly discussing. And it, it erases the population of people who are in the sex trade by choice. It's also wildly outdated. We decided against that in the 80s and 90s. There have been <laughs> academic debates over this. You lost. Well, Sorry. They, but they didn't lose. I know. So, you know, that's the point, is that it doesn't actually matter. You can you can watch, like, I don't remember what season it is, maybe season four of Scandal, where, you know, the chief of staff dude, what's his name? Oh, oh the little white dude. He's, yeah. He gets a boyfriend who's a sex worker, and, and they use the term sex worker, right? That. They use the term sex worker, and there's this moment of, like, rep boy representation, and it's, it's kind of amazing. Um, but it's like, this is in Washington, D.C. This is the chief of staff, and he's getting taught. He's getting his political education coming from a sex worker saying, that's the term I think you want to use. And I was just like, damn it. That's, okay, so that sort of gives people the impression that sex worker is a politically relevant term, which, of course, I want it to be. But we're actually still fighting a very basic fight around there being, like, people who are in the industry, maybe by choice under a really restricted number of choices, mm-hmm. right? Like this, I'm not, I am definitely not someone who's going to say that like everyone in the industry is empowered by it. It's a, it's an obviously exploitive industry. It's a racist industry. It's an industry full of misogyny. Um, it's a homophobic industry. It's got all kinds of things going on in it that, that are terrible. But when people are trying to make a living, Harming them because of the way that they're trying to make a living is one of the most backwards pieces of of legal logic to me. Yes, and it also, I mean, to bring it back to the trafficking issue, I think it just makes it more difficult for for trafficking victims to actually get the help that they need and to exit the industry. Because if, if you're a trafficking victim and you are being exploited by one person, and that person gets to hold the fact that you, they can get you prosecuted for prostitution or for trafficking yourself or for whatever, that makes it harder to leave. If you can't go report to law enforcement because they might just charge you with prostitution, like that makes it harder for you to leave. So I just think that that's another issue. Yeah, and it's one of the main arguments for people who want criminalization. And one of the things that really I think is difficult for me in terms of 
things that I've actually been seeing and that I, like I see trafficking as a problem in some tribal communities and there isn't enough research on it, so it's really hard to say, but there are some tribal communities where anecdotally in some cases it's like, oh yeah, like trafficking is really an issue, but by just focusing on trafficking as being a type of prostitution or like it looks like prostitution, you're missing a whole class of victims that are actually trafficking victims. And I'm specifically talking about children because there are crimes against children laws, there are sexual um, abuse laws and all of that that don't quite capture what is happening in terms of trafficking to Native children. And so it's like, how do you even start to, to focus in on that if we're fighting about whether or not sex workers exist and worried about calling sex workers traffickers or trafficking victims? Mm-hmm. Like, that's that's my main frustration with, with the that whole conversation. That does put it in a harsh perspective of terminology but at the expense of children mm-hmm. and I had this conversation recently where there was a, a, a trafficking training that was happening um, and we we're just talking about we we're just going over tribal laws that exist and explaining what the federal laws are and kind of some of the conversation that I'm having with you today and there was a wide range of folks there are people that were there comfortable using the term sex worker there are people that were there kind of on shore and then there were people there that were very like interrupting me to to let everyone know that all sex workers are, are prostituted women or all trafficking victims and, and those kinds of things. So it was a broad range. And uh, the co-presenter and I actually had a disagreement on that issue. But we started the, the conversation by just saying, hey, like we're going to have a conversation. There's going to be disagreement. We're not actually here to talk about the philosophy behind word choices or any of this. We're here because I think we're all concerned that trafficking might exist in your in your community and we don't want that to occur. Can we all agree on that? Nobody disagreed. So it was like, great. (laughs) We're all in agreement that sex work happens in your community. And everyone has a different feeling on whether or not that should occur. And we all sort of agreed on that. It's like, great. Now let's just talk about trafficking as a crime and how to address trafficking as it happens in your community. And so that was a really useful way to frame the conversation. And we actually got a a lot of engagement on that. And people... We got to like some slides about how trafficking laws or a trafficking criminal law by itself interacts with prostitution laws, um, and so we had people who were just like, "Okay, well, I don't want. I think that I think that all uh, sex workers are victims. Like all all prostitutes are victims." And it's like, "Great, do you want them criminalized?" No. Okay, so then that's so that's where we're point. so that's a starting point. <laughs> I don't know what you yeah. you do next, but you don't want them criminalized. If sex workers aren't criminalized in your community, they're a great resource for identifying traffickers and outreach to trafficking victims. Absolutely. There's there's a lot of anecdotal evidence on this in Alison Bass's work, in uh, Joe Dozema's work. What's Where are you going to find trafficking victims? Like, a lot of the time, the place you're going to find a trafficking victim is in a place where sex workers who are not trafficking victims are. So... You have a brothel. There's eight people who work there. One of them's trafficked. The other seven probably have noticed, mm-hmm. right? You're in a strip club. Uh, you've got 150 dancers. Uh, Ten of them are trafficked. The other dancers have probably noticed, right? So there's there's a sense in which the the criminalization of workers who are not trafficked actually prevents tra- anti-trafficking efforts, right? Yes. Yeah. You're also going to find trafficking victims in economically vulnerable places where you're going to see a very blurry line between 
consensual sex work and exploitation and survival sex mm-hmm. and trafficking. And we, we've seen this happen, especially under criminalization, where that line gets really blurry. But one thing that everyone who might be in that room can say is this is where the exploitation is happening, this is how it is happening, and this is how we could get out of this exploitative situation if those people in the room were allowed to voice. I think one thing that I'm I'm encountering when I'm reading about decriminalization, which again is which sex worker rights organizations and sex worker-led organizations tend to call for decriminalization, one of the concerns that arises from people who are worried about trafficking victims is that if you decriminalize sex work, that you're in effect legalizing trafficking. That's that's the concern that if you that if you remove the criminal penalties from sex work, that it opens the door for trafficking to to occur. And I want Corey to address that one. Yeah, does that have any legal basis? Because <laughs> logically, that doesn't follow for me. But I study narrative, not law. Well, so let's just talk about state criminal systems, because it gets complicated when you talk about tribal criminal justice systems. So if you're saying prostitution was criminalized, now it's decriminalized. Prostitution can occur, and neither the buyer or the worker can can get prosecuted for anything, correct? Mm -hmm. And you're saying the argument is folks say that opens the door to trafficking? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, like when when California passed its safe harbor law, there were people who published articles saying California just legalized child prostitution. California yep. just allowed child trafficking. Well, so that's different because the prostitution law is is no longer in effect, but the trafficking law is still there. And so trafficking, the commercial sexual exploitation of another person, kind of that's my loose definition of what the legal definition should be. That is still something you can you can charge someone with, and so if a worker is being exploited, their money's being taken, they're being forced to work against their will, et cetera, et cetera, something like that, the trafficker, the perpetrator in that instance, will still be prosecuted as a trafficker under the trafficking law. The client or the buyer can be prosecuted under the trafficking law, depending on how it's worded, but generally under most laws, they could still be prosecuted for trafficking if they knew or should have known that the worker was a victim. Mm-hmm. And so both folks can be, both the uh, trafficker and, and the buyer can still be criminalized and still be criminally prosecuted for trafficking. And But there's no risk to the victim. If the victim wants to go report, there's no concern that they have to prove that they weren't working as a prostitute. Mm-hmm. I'm convinced. <laughs> so, I mean, I guess that brings up in it's very well stated, by the way. In uh, Native nations, it's different, and it's complicated because, like I mentioned before, non-Indians aren't subject to tribal criminal laws or tribal right. criminal prosecution, and so tribal advocates and some I'm not sure I can't say what their motives are, but folks who I think there were a lot of folks who were upset, basically people who think all sex workers are victims, were upset about Amnesty USA buying onto the decriminalization approach of Amnesty International. But tribal advocates specifically, some of them were, were upset, and some people voiced an argument that I think essentially goes, if sex work is decriminalized, then there's no way to address non-Indians. Like, 
crimes that non-Indians commit against Indian people because then the state is going to be prosecuting. Like the state's not going to be looking at the state's not going to be looking at prostitution, so they're not going to be seeing tra- they're not going to find trafficking. And if you don't find trafficking, then non-Indians go unpunished for crimes against Native women. Okay, and so and, and tribes could be looking out for it, but tribes can't prosecute. So that's where we get the the concern about the extension of colonial practice of like. No, that's a basic concern. If if you're not policing prostitution, how could you find a trafficking victim? I think. I see. I think that's the I, argument. I see. Is that connected to the idea that if you arrest someone for prostitution, you could be rescuing them? Maybe. I don't, I don't know, and I, I should have looked into it more before talking to you about it today, but I, know that, um, I do know that Native advocates who don't like the decriminalization model have that kind of extra argument because it's a little different in any country in terms of criminal jurisdiction over everyone. Native right. nations just don't have it. I guess my next question would be, as it stands right now, what would be what is the accountability for non-natives just committing violent crime against native women um very little very little so some it's it goes back to the general criminal jurisdiction and if there's this movie called road to paloma that goes into it but essentially if you're uh, a native nation your land um you'll have criminal jurisdiction over indians Mm -hmm. and you won't have criminal jurisdiction over non-indians so you can't prosecute, but then there's state and federal authorities. So in some st- in some places, the state will have authority to prosecute non-Indians for crimes committed on the Indian reservation, but they don't always. They won't. They might not investigate them. They might not prosecute them, et cetera, et cetera. Some places only the feds can prosecute non-Indians for crimes committed on the reservation, and getting a federal prosecutor out to handle a domestic violence call or a sex trafficking any like something that's just a small case that's not going to build their career it's very difficult and resources and location like you might only have one one federal prosecutor and they might be 300 miles from the reservation and and there might not be someone who's there to police investigations and all that sort of thing it just it just doesn't happen and so what happens is most of the time the feds decline to prosecute so that's kind of like criminal it's it's much more complicated than that but that's kind of the basic is that tribes can't prosecute non-indians um, and there are a couple of exceptions to that. Now there are some domestic violence. Some tribes can bring domestic violence charges against non-Indians if like a certain set of requirements are are made. And there's only a few tribes that are, are using that jurisdiction right now. That makes a lot of sense then that there would be real concern about the increased or or at least more virulent exploitation of women happening if if the federal like if, if the federal prosecutors aren't going after prostitution, they're not. They're, they're not set up they're, for that. They're, they're not they're, doing that. They're anyway. not supposed to do that. Yeah. Local yeah. authorities are supposed to handle that kind of crime. Hmm. Okay, but they won't give the local authorities, in this case, the tribe, the jurisdiction to do that. And it's kind of just a, a, an inherently racist argument that tribal courts aren't going to give justice to non-Indians, and so non-Indians need to go to non-Indian court. I learned a lot here tonight. <laughs> did you learn? I did. Did you learn anything? Did we help you at all? Yeah, I think so. I mean, we didn't, you didn't say it on the air, but I think I had some questions just if you are a tribal advocate who wants to stop trafficking, so you're pro-trafficking laws, don't want to criminalize Native women, so you're anti-prostitution laws, Like, and it turns out that you've been conflating prostitution and trafficking this whole time, Like, how do you address the issue of we don't want a bunch of native sex workers in our community for X, Y, or Z. Like, how do you actually do, what do you do to make it 
better for sex workers and make it easier for sex workers to transition to some other kind of work. Kind of still go by, I think, ultimate conclusion was talk to sex workers and specifically talk to Native sex workers and talk to Native victims of trafficking. And to me, the foundation of any policy that's going to effectively help Native sex workers and Native victims of trafficking is going to come, it's going to be informed from their experience. Um, And as I said, the the other answer I I almost always keep coming back to is economic development and economic opportunities, because if you really want to stop sex work, give people better options. Yeah. In terms of getting folks to the table, does decriminalization have to happen first before you can have any of these other conversations? Or is that... Threat of prosecution big enough barrier. Well, you can have immunity and safe spaces from prosecution without, but before decrim. Yeah, I mean, so I participated recently in a focus group kind of roundtable discussion for trans sex workers of color at the LGBT center. You know, nobody was granted immunity. Nobody was given any special protection, Mm -hmm. but it was because it was at the LGBT center. There was a sense of like, okay, this is a place where you're not going to get set up. Like you're not going to get raided in the middle of this conversation. This is actually a conversation to get your opinions. And, um, you know, there were like 15 people who showed up and who are all willing to share stories and share recommendations and share ideas. And one of the things that kept coming from the conversation was just like, you know, getting people out of the industry is fine. There's lots of people who want to get out of the industry who would get out of the industry if they mm-hmm. had some help to do so. But that's that's sort of like, you know, like you can't just push someone out of the nest and then hope they fly. This is not that kind of situation. Um, because you can't get a job without a resume. You, you know, you can't go in somewhere and say like, well, you know, I've been a sex worker for the last 10 years and I'd like to try something else. Like that's just not a conversation you're going to be able to have right now in, in, in the U.S. So the the sense that you need job training and that a lot of people really need basic services they're looking they need housing they need food they need money in their pocket like these sort of basic services keeping in mind that getting people out of the industry requires baseline basic services to help them and that it it has to be an an empowerment project a self-empowerment project diversion programs for prostitution as a solution you know, tend to fall flat because they don't offer that kind of support. They offer a moralistic argument for how you don't love yourself because you're a hooker, and then you're supposed to be like, oh, yeah, shit, I, I need to love myself better, and then my life will fall into place, you know. And or it's you've like, been a victim the whole or, time. Or you've been a victim this whole time, mm-hmm. um, and once you value yourself enough, you'll be able to proceed with your life. But but the basic support, and it's, and it's, it's basic. It's food. It's mm-hmm. housing, right? That ultimately, that again and again, that's what I'm seeing when I'm reading, and when and and in this focus group that I was in, like um, that, sex workers are saying we want to be able to, we want to be able to move in and out of the industry on our own as we see fit, and we want to know that we can care for our basic needs. And if we can't care for our basic needs, don't be mad. If we're going to do the work, that doesn't make any sense, you know. How This is how I care for my basic needs. So I do think that that sort of question of getting sex workers to the table, not just on policy, which is so important, but also on what is going to be useful for you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I do think in tribal communities that that actually is what folks, like folks don't want trafficking to happen, and they also just want Native people to have what they need and be safe. 
Also, it's so reasonable, which is nice. <laughs> it's a nice place to start. It's a nice starting point that we all seem to agree on, which yeah, is good. That's reasonable. It's more reasonable than other places. Yeah. I really think trafficking victims need to also specifically be invited to the table. Partly being informed by I was invited to be on a panel of trafficking victims as a consensual sex worker and pretty much just to be the hi, I'm a consensual sex worker, I'm not a trafficking victim, I exist. Like, mm-hmm. that was my entire role. But the thing that I heard over and over on that panel was there is a lot of talk about anti-trafficking and very, very little of it is being led by the people and communities most affected by it, which... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move us move us towards the ending here because I think it's time. We definitely can continue this conversation. I know that the beginning of this conversation was a pretty brief overview of what the different models are and then we got into how trafficking and prostitution laws work in the U.S. But if you have any questions about any of this or if you want to offer us a perspective or if you have another resource for us, anything of that nature, if you have another topic you want to hear on the podcast, If you want to tell me or Lauren or Corey how much you appreciate us for putting in this labor for you tonight. Or what we did wrong and how we can fix it. We do want to hear that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Happy to hear criticism. Um, Happier to hear praise. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Please contact us. You can email us at onthedresser at gmail.com. That is a good way to get in touch with us. If you want to follow us on Twitter, we're on the dresser. On the Dresser's production team is... It is Dr. Vanessa Carlisle. Oh, that's me. That's you. Myself, Lauren Kiley, a wonderful Danny Cruz, and all of our music is produced by Lou Gomez. You can also catch up on past episodes of On the Dresser and uh, previous episodes of Sex, Please Radio on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher Radio. You can find us there at On the Dresser. While you're there, we would love it if you would subscribe and share your favorites with all of your friends. Share us around. I want to thank Corey Cordero so much for being with us tonight. They're an attorney at Tribal Law and Policy Institute doing amazing work and working too hard. Thank Thank you, you, Corey. Thank you. you. All right, on the dresser listeners. All power to the people. All pleasure to the people. Good Good night night and and good good fuck. fuck.